It's good to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings in the name of the Lord. Let's look to the Lord together as we come to his word just briefly again. Father, thank you for your truth and for the truth that was just sung in that song that we, we shouldn't gain. There's no, no reason that we should gain from the reward of the sufferings of the Lamb except for grace. And we, we rejoice as partakers and sharers in the gospel of Christ. We come to hear your word because we know that the Lord of the church has the right to be heard in his church. And so we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On more than one occasion already, I've made reference to the significance of a preacher's first sermon series in his new congregation. I've said that you can gain great insight into a pastor's heart by learning what he wants to say first to this new group of people because that first sermon or series of sermons lays a foundation, sets the tone for the, their relationship together as they minister alongside one another in the gospel of Christ. Well, in my opening months here at Grace Life, I haven't yet launched into a, a sermon series. I haven't, didn't do that right at the beginning. Instead, I preach certain passages that the Lord has used in my life to sh really shape and mold my thinking and my affections. And while there are certainly more of those texts, and by God's grace, dozens more, I wanted to share with you in those first sample of the few, I suppose you could say, the blessings that I had experienced as God dealt with me through his work. I wanted to bring you along with me in the paths of those blessings in order to benefit you with the word of God as he has illumined it to me. And in the process, I was hoping that I would let you get to know me a little bit. I mean, as those are some of my favorite passages, some of the, the ways that God has dealt with me most deeply, I think that there are few better ways to get to know somebody than to hear about how God's dealt with him personally through his word. But rather than just going on preaching my favorite text of scripture, <laughs> as much as I might like to do that, the time has come for me to begin a, a sermon series here in Grace Life. And so this morning, we will begin a study of the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the reason that I thought it would be fitting to study Philippians is because it's, Philippians speaks very appositely to our own situation here in Grace Life. We'll introduce the, the main arguments and themes a little in greater detail a bit later, but if I had to summarize Paul's letter to the Philippians, I would say that it is a letter about the gospel. It's a letter about the gospel. But it's not so much a letter about the content of the gospel or the doctrine of the gospel like, like Romans would be. And though there's a little bit of polemical instruction, there's not a, a full-blown defense of the gospel against heresy like Galatians is. Philippians is more about the implications of the gospel. See, Paul assumes that the Philippians understand the true orthodox gospel of Jesus Christ, and he even celebrates that fellowship that he has with them in that gospel. Much of this letter overflows with sincere love and deep affection that Paul has for the Philippians as a result of their love and their affection for him, as evidenced by their consistent support of his ministry. These are people who are believers in the truth, and these are people who have even consistently acted in line with their confession of faith in response to that truth throughout the course of their lives. And yet at the same time, Paul's letter to them is not without exhortation. It's not without warning. It's not without instruction and command. Even this doctrinally sound, ministry-minded, and loving and affectionate congregation 
has room for improvement. The thesis statement for the entire book comes in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And even though, unfortunately, it's, it's become almost trite to, to say the word gospel in relation to Christian sanctification, just if you take a look at the amount of books that are being published in there, just look at their titles, we have things like the explicit gospel, gospel-centered discipleship, gospel-powered parenting, gospel wakefulness, the gospel commission, the transforming power of the gospel, the gospel made visible, gospel coach, and yes, even simply gospel. I'm not saying that any, that's bad. I'm glad to hear people focusing on the main thing, but unfortunately, all that talk has brought with it, uh, you know, a, a sort of trite sounding, oh, if we're going to talk about the gospel, we're gospel people, gospel living, li engaging in gospel deeds and things like that, and it becomes a little bit tiresome, and that's unfortunate because if we look, look at Philippians 1.27, we find that Paul's letter to the Philippians really is about the gospel-driven life. In fact, if I had to give a subtitle to the book of Philippians, that's what I would call it, the gospel-driven life. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's calling his dear brothers and sisters to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that bespeaks that high calling that they enjoy. All of their lives are to be driven by the gospel. And so, not unlike the Thessalonian church, which Paul's letters portray as a model church, the Philippians were faithful, but they weren't above Paul's exhortation to excel still more. And as I thought about it, that situation is very relevant to our own situation here in Grace Life. Praise the Lord that you have been taught so faithfully. I mean, aside from sitting under Pastor John's expositions of the Scriptures for years and years, you've also enjoyed the faithful teaching of men like Phil Johnson and Don Green and Lance Quinn even over these last couple of weeks and in the past, uh, a long time before that. By God's grace, you know the true gospel. And we also thank God that he's been gracious to grow you all in that gospel, in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that many of you are pressing further and further into spiritual maturity. And you, along with the rest of Grace Community Church, know what it means to minister alongside one another, to serve one another, to comfort one another, to challenge one another, and even to support one another. And at the same time, you know that there is room for improvement. We don't yet do all those things as we should, or even as, as we could. We can grow in our love and affection for one another. We can serve each other more sacrificially. We can be more committed to true biblical fellowship, meeting one another's needs, being faithful to pray for one another, responding righteously to suffering, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and a thousand other things. And so I want to study the book of Philippians with you for the same reasons that Paul wrote it. Number one, to express my love and affection for you as fellow partakers in the grace of God and Jesus Christ and as fellow laborers in his ministry. And two, to exhort you to excel still more in everything that you do to conduct yourselves, your lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, to more faithfully bring everything in your life into submission to the lordship of Jesus. My goal for this morning is to introduce the book to you, 
part of what I want to do is just give a, a real bird's eye overview of the entire epistle. And so ask questions like, what is Paul's flow of thought? What are the major themes of the book? What is the purpose that he's writing for? And it's also important, before we dive right into the opening of the text, to familiarize ourselves with the historical context of and the occasion for the letter. You know, it's a shame that many professing Christians kind of approach the Bible as if it was a, a collection of quaint sayings out of a Hallmark card or out of a fortune cookie. They open the Bible and they, they skip the foundational steps of observation, what does the text say, of interpretation, what does the text mean, and they skip straight to application. What personal significance does this text have for me right now? And that can be pretty easy to do with Philippians, especially because Philippians contains some of our favorite verses, verses we quote often. Think about it. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Just a few verses after that, be anxious for nothing, but, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And a few verses after that, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Backing up to chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And who can forget chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These are our favorite passages. And so it's easy to go to Scripture and, and take those passages, abstract them from their context, and go on our merry way. But we can't forget that these great texts weren't intended to be a bunch of divine one-liners. We need to remember that God ordained that His Word be recorded by real people in the context of daily life. Every biblical author wrote to a specific audience in a specific context of life in a, to a city, a real city, where they're going through real-life struggles and in response to specific needs. And so when we study Scripture, we need to read it in its context. We engage in grammatical historical interpretation. I'm sure you've heard that phrase over the years here. Grammatical means that we pay very close attention to what the text says. We abide by the rules of grammar. And historical means that we consider the historical and cultural context in which the relevant events took place and when the text was written. You could say it like this. We can never know what the text means until we know what it meant. And we understand what it meant by considering the historical context in which it was written. And what's wonderful about that, we don't have to go outside of Scripture to do that. I mean, a lot of times that kind of scares people off because they think, oh, that means history books and commentaries and all that thing. Well, they help amass the data that's in the Scripture to present a, a nice story and a, a good flow of argument. But the data is in the Bible itself. The Bible contains a lot of history, even New Testament history, from the book of Acts, which is the entire history of the church from its birth in around 30 A.D. at Pentecost through about 60 A.D. as Paul goes to his imprisonment in Rome. And then aside from that, we have the personal details that Paul includes in all of his letters, and then the content of those letters themselves, which give us insight into what would have been taking place there. And from all of that, we can piece together a picture of the historical context of Philippians from Scripture itself. Context that adds color and definition to the content of the letter. So let's begin 
by turning briefly, not to Philippians 1, but to Acts chapter 16, as we observe Paul's relationship with the Philippian church from the beginning. In Acts, we won't read the chapter or anything, but we'll go through it, uh, the themes in it here. As we learn in verses 6 to 9 that Paul and his team were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to enter Asia Minor. After that, Paul received a vision, verse 9, from a Macedonian man, entreating him, come over to Macedonia to help us. And so he went and coming to Philippi and not finding a synagogue there, he went outside the city to a place of prayer where some women, a group of women had assembled there uh, to pray. And as Paul was, was preaching, God was gracious to a fabric seller from Thyatira named Lydia. Verse 14 says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And she became the, the first convert to Christianity in Europe. But it's not long before Paul and Silas find themselves in jail. They cast out a demon from a fortune-telling slave girl. And as a result, they've come under the ire of the owners of that slave girl because they've seen that their opportunities for profits have been taken away. So they're in jail, but the Lord sends an earthquake in the middle of the night that shakes the foundation of the jail. And in verse 26, it tells us that immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And the jailer, knowing that the Romans would brutally execute him for failing to guard his prisoners, drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul ran in right away and stopped him saying, no, we're all here, don't, don't harm yourself. And the jailer, fearing for his life and having heard the gospel that Paul and Silas were singing throughout the night beforehand, the jailer repented of his sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with Lydia and her household and the jailer and his household, the Philippian church began there in around A.D. 49 or 50. And after returning to Philippi to strengthen the church about five years later, and then once more a year after that, as we learn in Acts chapter 20, Paul found himself imprisoned in Caesarea for about two years where he stood trial before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And after he got fed up with waiting, he appealed to Caesar and he was brought to Rome by ship, as you remember the shipwreck on the way, in order to stand trial before Nero. And as we turn back to Philippians, we find that this is the setting from which Paul writes his letter. He mentions his imprisonment multiple times throughout the first chapter, verse 7, verses 13 and 14, verse 17. In verse 13, he says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And the mention of the Praetorian Guard, which was stationed in Rome, along with a reference in chapter 4, verse 22, to all of Caesar's household, those, both those statements give evidence that Paul was writing to, to the Philippians in Rome under his first Roman imprisonment toward the end of it. Because in chapter 2, verse 24, he says that he expects to be released shortly. And so we date Philippians toward the end of his first Roman imprisonment around A.D. 62, about 13 years late after he came to the, to the city for the first time. And in prison, you, as you might expect, Paul is facing very unpleasant and difficult circumstances. He's facing physical limitation, as does any prisoner whose freedom is in the hands of someone else. He faces a sort of ministerial limitation because he's not free to move about and to visit and to minister the gospel traveling from city to city. 
And he, he faces a sort of social limitation in that he's prohibited from seeing his brothers and sisters whom he loves, although he does apparently have Timothy with him, chapter 1, verse 1. And on top of all that, the physical limitation, the social limitation, the, the ministerial limitation, there seemed to be this, this group of professing Christians in Rome who are unfavorably disposed to Paul, saying things like something to the effect that the reason that Paul is in prison is because of the Lord's punishment. God had to put him on the shelf because of some sort of moral failure or ministerial failure. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says that they preach Christ from envy and strife. Verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Imagine that, preaching the gospel, not to serve people and see them saved, but to enhance their own reputation and to discredit Paul's. In any case, the news of Paul's imprisonment and trying circumstances had reached Philippi, and out of their love for him and their support for the gospel that he preaches, the Philippians send Epaphroditus to Rome to visit Paul, to minister to his needs, and to provide fellowship for him. In chapter 2, verse 25, Paul calls Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So he's their messenger and minister to Paul's need. And along with Epaphroditus, they send a financial gift to Paul, which he calls in chapter 4, verse 18, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, or well-pleasing to God. Such a, a monetary offering would provide means for Paul to continue to rent his living quarters, which we learned that he was doing from Acts chapter 28, and also to provide meals for himself. It was the kind of thing where if you rented living quarters and provided meals, you could have your friends come and go in, within reason. But if you didn't provide that, the Romans weren't paying for you, and you'd be left as a prisoner to be shackled and contained somehow outside, but outside indeed and exposed to the elements. And so that financial gift would indeed minister to Paul. Well, on the, whether it was on the way to Rome or sometime after he arrived, Epaphroditus fell ill and the Philippians heard that he was sick. And because of their love for him, they became distressed and they became anxious. They wanted to find out how he was doing. And if you take a look at chapter 2, verse 26, Paul says that Epaphroditus was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. See, this is an affectionate group. The Philippians were worried when they heard that Epaphroditus was sick. And then Epaphroditus was worried because he knew he was okay, but he didn't want the Philippians to think that he was uh, in serious danger. And then Paul was worried about both of them, so he decides that as he sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi, that he will send along with him a letter a letter that Epaphroditus can take back on his return trip. Aside from ministering to Paul in fellowship and bringing a love gift of financial support, it's certain that Epaphroditus also brought news of the Philippian church, how things were going. And after celebrating their fellowship together in the ministry of the gospel, Paul would also take the opportunity to address the more troubling news that Epaphroditus had brought. Among such troubling news was the Philippians were undergoing opposition and persecution. Also, the, the seeds of disunity were being sown in the congregation. 
And also there was, they were coming under the threat of false teaching, teachers seeking to propagate false doctrine. And so Paul writes to address these issues as well. And so there we have the historical context and occasion for Paul's letter. He's in prison. Epaphroditus has been sent to him to minister to him, to offer a gift. He writes back to express his love and his concern and his thankfulness for them in their participation of his ministry. And then he also writes to address some of these issues. And so in the short time that we have left together this morning, I want to provide an overview of the two main points of Philippians. That'll be our outline. The two main points of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we consider these main points, we'll get that 30,000-foot view of the major themes of the book. And as we get our arms wrapped around the whole of the epistle, I hope that in that way, with the Lord's help, that will equip us to, for studying this marvelous, marvelous portion of the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God in the coming months. So the first main point we've already briefly mentioned, number one, Paul expresses thankfulness and joy for the Philippians' participation in the gospel. Paul expresses thankfulness and joy for the Philippians' participation in the gospel. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Skip down to verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, given all of the history that we just went over, tracing Paul's steps in their relation, his relationship with the Philippians, doesn't, doesn't that historical context make that opening greeting sing? I mean, you can open your Bible and you can read those words, and those are excellent words, but I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm so, so much more ministered to understanding that there was a context in which this came, than understanding the, the relationship with the gifts and the support of his ministry and the partaking and the common persecution. It just makes that live. When Paul remembers the Philippians, which is often, and when he prays for them like a good spiritual father that he is, his memories are laced with fondness and affection, and his prayers are accompanied with joy. And this kind of warm, loving affection permeates throughout the entire letter. As I read the commentaries in Philippians in preparing for this message, something that they all mention right off the bat is how intensely personal Philippians is. And, and Paul was affectionate in almost all of his letters, but Philippians is just over the top. I mean, for one thing, he refers to himself more often than in any of his other letters. The first-person singular pronoun, whether expressed explicitly or assumed in a first-person singular verb, appears over 120 times in this epistle. He also uses the endearing term brethren or brothers six times in these four short chapters to underscore this familial bond that he has with the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 12, now I want you to know brethren. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 13, again in verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 8. Not only this, but he also uses the term beloved. Beloved. Those whom I love, 
Look at chapter 4, verse 1, and, and take this in. Feel how full his heart is. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, beloved. He repeats, beloved, twice, calls them his brethren, expresses his great desire to see them face to face, and even calls them his joy and crown. Commentator D. Edmund Hebert summarizes it well. He says, Paul's letter to the Philippians is like an open window into the apostle's very heart. In it, we have the unedited outpouring of his unrestrained love for and his unalloyed joy in his devoted and loyal Philippian friends. Where does such a love come from? What is the ground of such rich affection? Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. He thanks God in every remembrance of the Philippians and prays for them with joy in view of or because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And again, in verse 7, I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and the defense of the, and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. What drives Paul and the Philippians to this affectionate love and care and unity for, between one another is the unity that they share objectively in the gospel. They are fellow partakers of the grace that comes through Christ alone. And, and as I mentioned briefly before, the gospel of Christ is central to all of Paul's thought in the Philippians, in the letter to the Philippians. The Greek word euangelion occurs nine times in this letter, which is the greatest frequency in all of his letters. It also occurs nine times in Romans, but Romans is four times as big as Philippians. In fact, the word occurs five times in chapter one alone. We've seen it in verses five and seven already, but skip down to verse 12. He's speaking about the progress of the gospel. Verse 16, I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. And verse 27, twice, conduct your, yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on to say, and I want to hear that you are standing firm, striving for the faith of the gospel. See, it is the gospel that is the basis of this mutual endearment and joy between Paul and the Philippians. Their fellowship is gospel-driven. And briefly, the emphasis on the gospel is underscored by an overwhelmingly frequent reference to Jesus. Paul makes a reference to Jesus 68 times in 104 verses in Philippians, 21 times in chapter 1, 16 in 2, 21 times in chapter 3, and 10 times in chapter 4. That's a reference to Christ on average in two out of every three verses. He can't get away. I did this this week. I took my Greek text and I, out, I highlighted key words in different colors and I highlighted Christ or references to Christ in yellow and I looked at it because I'm a very visual guy and the yellow just overwhelms you as you look at these pages. And what's interesting about that, my assistant who works with me in the outreach department said, oh, I wonder what this, this letter is about. And I said, well, actually, it's interesting because Paul's not writing a Christology here. Paul's not giving, I mean, there is some great Christological truth in this letter. I mean, great Christological truth. But it's not like Paul sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi saying, hmm, I think they need to better understand the hypostatic union. It's not that. It's that 
the overwhelming emphasis on Jesus isn't because he's writing a Christological treatise, but because the reality of being united to Christ has so permeated and pervaded all of Paul's life and mind that all of his experiences are colored by the reality of his union with Christ. It's not just that Christ is first, it's that he is all in all. It's not just that Christ is the Lord over everything, but that he's the Lord in everything. So I just thought that was an encouraging aside. That's an enormous amount of emphasis on Christ, but emphasis because it's, the, it's just the warp and woof of Paul's life. He lives and breathes Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just that the Philippians were fellow heirs of the grace of the gospel. I mean, the Corinthians and the Galatians shared in Christ the same way. And yet, Paul's expression of love and affection for the Philippians is just, it's over the top. It's unique. Why? What made it different? It was because the Philippians ministered that gospel alongside Paul in a unique way. God has so knit their hearts together because the Philippians have participated in Paul's ministry. They've stood with him in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. They've continued to support him even while he was in prison. They're not ashamed of his chains. Remember again the occasion for the letter. The church has sent one of their dear brothers and trusted friends on a 40 days journey from the eastern side of Greece to central Italy. They've sent him with financial support. And this was characteristic of the Philippians. If you look at chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul begins the letter with this thought and he ends the letter with this thought. It's an inclusio. It brackets his focus on the Philippians' participation in the gospel. He says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So their commitment to Paul was unique among the churches. And it's interesting that he says that even in Thessalonica, because Thessalonica was just the next stop on the way to Philippi, or out of the way of Philippi. So Paul had just left them, and, and immediately they are sending help financially to meet his needs as he goes to the very next city. And that wasn't always easy for the Philippians. It wasn't that they were sitting on a gold mine. In fact, it's interesting that I say that because there was a gold mine. Philippi was very well known for its gold and silver mines, but hundreds of years earlier, all of that had been exhausted by the time that Paul got there in AD 49 and 50. That's for next week. But um, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is just so heartwarming to learn that Paul bragged about his friends in Philippi, bragged about their generosity toward him. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. He's writing to the Corinthians now. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, Macedonia of which Philippi was a great part, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Do you hear that? 
This is the effect of the gospel on the purse strings. The Philippians, along with the other Macedonian churches, had so treasured Jesus Christ that the abundant joy that they had in him led them to cheerfully give, even beyond their ability, to the cause of the advancement of the gospel. No wonder Paul loved these people so much. I love these people when I'm reading it like that because they, they show me how valuable my Savior is. He's so valuable that he loosens my tight fists and my grip on my wallet because my treasure isn't in money but in him. And this is the way that, friends, we need to think about in supporting our missionaries, those that we minister financial support to. God has so blessed Grace Church to have given us over 70 missionary families that we could have sent out from this church to minister all across the nations. And we participate in their ministry of the gospel in China, in Russia, in Mexico, South America, the UK, throughout Europe and Africa. We minister the gospel in those places by holding the rope as the missionaries go down on the front lines. And so... When we give out of the abundance of our joy and even sometimes in difficulty, when we don't think that we can spare another dime, we allow our abundant joy in Jesus Christ to overflow in the wealth of liberality. Listen, I, I know that you read these passages about the love and affection that Paul and the Philippians shared, and I know that you want that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You read that and you say, man, did he love them. Man, did they love him. Why isn't that happening in my life all the time? You desire that. If you've known it ever, you desire that. And one thing that we can learn from these texts is that nothing, nothing has the ability to uniquely knit the hearts of Christians together like participating and supporting with one another in the ministry of the gospel. So let your desire for that kind of Christ-focused, God-exalting joy in other believers compel you to be a cheerful giver in support of the ministry. And that doesn't have to be limited to financial participation, though in the case of our missionaries, it certainly should include that. But even among your brothers and sisters here at Grace Church, you don't have to give them money all the time, although that probably would be helpful for some of them. <laughs> but also, just how about your time? The men and women sitting with you here this morning you can cultivate this deep joy, this warm affection and solid fellowship by ministering the gospel alongside one another. Let me ask you this. When you read the opening verses of Philippians, which we've read a couple times together already, about longing for one another with the affection of Christ Jesus, are there people that come to mind? Do you think about particular people when you read that? I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I know there are for me, the, the men and women that come to mind are those whom I've suffered with for the cause of the gospel, those whom I've labored with alongside until Christ has been fully formed in the people that we were ministering to. And there is nothing like the fellowship that comes from standing alongside one another in the ministry of the gospel. And so in the, in the coming months, as we dig into this letter, cultivate this joy and affection for one another. Thank God often for your fellow laborers. Remember to hold them in prayer. Recognize that there is no better way for that fellowship to be nurtured than to minister, to labor in ministry alongside them. 
Think about how you might better involve yourselves in the ministry of the gospel to Christ, the gospel of Christ, both to unbelievers in evangelism and both and to the body of Christ here within the walls of Grace Community Church. And so in his letter to the Philippians, Paul expresses thankfulness and joy for their participation in the gospel. That's main point number one. You could summarize it by saying, you've done well and I love you for it. But the second main point, number two, Paul exhorts the Philippians to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Paul exhorts the Philippians to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And we see this in multiple places throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, we just read it three or four times. Paul expresses thankfulness and joy for them in light of their participation with him in the gospel. But then in verses 9 to 11, he offers a prayer. He makes known his prayer for them. And he says, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. See, he tells the Philippians, you've done well. The love that we share for one another in view of your support of, our, of my ministry is great. You have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. But I pray that your love will abound still more and more. I pray that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, the actual fruit, the doing of it. In the language of chapter 2, I want you to work out your salvation beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. No question about that, about your commitment to the gospel. But now work out your salvation. It's a present imperative. Go on continuously working out your salvation. Keep doing it. In the language of our theme verse, verse uh, chapter 1, verse 27, the, the first imperative in the entire epistle, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your lives in such a way that they match the glorious calling with which you've been called. You know the gospel. You participate in this ministry. But don't let up. Keep on ministering. Keep on conducting yourselves in a way that befits and bespeaks that great gospel that you were called by. Bring your practice in line with your position. In the language of 1 Thessalonians, which we heard last week, Paul tells the Philippians to excel still more. In view of all the good that you've done, continue, abound, excel still more. And as I mentioned briefly earlier, Paul exhorts them in particular areas in response to Epaphroditus' report about them. And I'll, I'll highlight four areas in which Paul exhorts the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's just sort of an overview to whet your appetite as we study this in the months to come. Four areas in which Paul exhorts the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel. First, in steadfastness. Paul exhorts the Philippians to stand firm. That's the first phrase that comes after the command to walk worthy of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. You see, as we mentioned, the Philippians were enduring opposition, both the threat of persecution and the threat of false teaching. And Paul has much to say in this letter about enduring that opposition. He invites the Philippians to consider his own example of steadfastness in suffering. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, particularly 19 to 26, he rejoices amidst his trials because his hope is not in the circumstances that he finds himself in, but in the magnification of Christ's glory. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope, verse 20, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is giving them that example to endure suffering, endure harsh treatment. People preaching the gospel because they want to give him a hard time. He says, I don't worry about that. I rejoice because my joy is not in my circumstances, but it's in my Savior. And we can be sure that as long as the Father is sovereign, Christ will be magnified. So, be anxious for nothing, he tells them, but by everything, in, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So stand firm in suffering. And then he, he devotes the entirety of chapter 3 to addressing the false doctrines that were pressing their way into the church from outside. Verses 2 to 11, Paul warns them of the legalists and he assures them that it is the followers of Christ who are the true circumcision and who put no confidence in the flesh. In verses 12 to 16, he cautions them against the error of the, the perfectionists, those who wrongly suppose that we might shed the entirety of our sinfulness on this side of heaven. And then in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 3, he calls them to beware of the antinomians, the libertines who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And then he closes that section in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1, by repeating his call to stand firm in the Lord. And not only does Paul exhort the Philippians to steadfastness, he exhorts them to unity. As sound as the Philippians were, they were beginning to experience the seeds of disunity within their congregation. There was even a well-publicized disagreement between two of the leading women in the congregation. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, he entreats them to be of the same mind. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So they've ministered alongside Paul. Later on in verse, in verse 3, he says that their names are written in the book of life. So this isn't bringing their salvation into question. But the cancer of disunity within the church is so serious that it cannot be allowed to fester. If it does, it has the potential to metastasize and to infect the rest of the congregation. And that kind of division does not aid in a young church's fight to withstand persecution and opposition and false teaching. If unchecked, disunity could severely impair the Philippians' witness of the gospel in their city. The integrity of the gospel is contradicted by disunity in the church. If they went along 
grumbling and disputing, as it says in chapter 2, verse 14, they wouldn't be able to prove themselves blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom they should appear as lights in the world. And so it's to this end that, that Paul calls them in chapter 2, verse 2, to make his joy complete, he says, by being of the same mind, by maintaining the same love, by being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. See, unity is experienced subjectively as we interact with our fellow believers in as much as that unity is properly grounded in the objective work of the gospel. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, make my joy complete by being unified. And the goal of unity is achieved along the path of humility, which is the third area of Paul's exhortation. Number one, steadfastness. Number two, unity. And number three, humility. Immediately after the exhortation of chapter 2, verse 2, in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then he turns to the premier, preeminent example of humility, the incarnation and the ignominious death of the Son of God, who though he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, was exalted to the very right hand of God in due time. So Paul urges the Christians to follow Christ's example in humility. And as humility is the path to unity, so is joy the path to humility. That's the fourth area of Paul's exhortation. Joy, steadfastness, unity, humility, and joy. And the language of joy just permeates the, the epistle to the Philippians. It occurs 16 times, the, word, the root word, in Philippians in just these four short chapters. We'll just brief survey, chapter 1, verse 4, Paul thanks God for the Philippians and prays for them with joy. 118, he rejoices in the proclamation of the gospel, even if it's coming from impure motives. Uh, 125, if he remains on in the flesh to minister among the Philippians, it will be for their progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 2, his joy is complete when the Philippians are unified. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he calls them to follow his example of rejoicing in suffering for the cause of the gospel. Verses 28 and 29, he sends Epaphroditus back so that they will rejoice and receive him with all joy. 3.1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's just everywhere. Commentator Walter Hansen captures it well when he says, like a mighty river surging through solid rock, joy flows from this letter through the suffering community of believers, giving them love for one another and the peace of God. What an exciting prospect as we look forward to growing through Paul's instruction to the Philippians in steadfastness, in unity, in humility, and in joy. But as I said earlier, Paul's letter to the Philippians everywhere assumes their participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in a group as large as ours, in a group in which I don't know yet every one of you personally, it's likely that there will always be someone among us who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, or better, who is not known by Him. And so the first application for you to make of this sermon is to be a sharer of the gospel of Christ. 
Maybe you're visiting with us for Labor Day weekend and you didn't get the chance to stand up. We're glad you're here and we welcome you. If you've come with your family or friend, we're, we're happy to have you. Or maybe you've been at Grace Community Church for 20 years, 30 years, and in all that time, you've deceived yourself and you've never truly bowed the knee to Christ. You've never truly repented of your sin. You've learned to blend in. You've learned to say the right things at the right times to say them. But you're hanging on to sin in your life and you're not submitted in every area to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For, for both the visitor and the veteran, the most important thing you can hear this, this Labor Day weekend is that there is still time to become a partaker in this wonderful gospel that Paul celebrates all throughout Philippians. Confess that your sin separates you from a holy God and, and, and that you have no claim to righteousness of your own, no claim to acceptance with God on the basis of your own merits. Turn from your sin. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, who was crucified on behalf of sinners, who was dead and buried and was raised in power on the third day, exalted to the right hand of the Father in majesty, and is alive today, ready to forgive all those who turn to him in faith. And for those of you who are my brothers and sisters, those of you who are partakers of grace with me, fellow laborers and fellow soldiers in the cause of the gospel, do know that you've done well and I love you for it. And though I haven't yet had the opportunity to have such a relationship with all of you that the Philippians have had with Paul, it's my prayer and anticipation that God will grant such relationships and that we'll have a, we will cultivate a deep, warm, loving affection as we strive together to proclaim the gospel. And yet at the same time, we want to excel still more. We want to all the more conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We want to be even better tomorrow than we are today, even better next year than we are this year. And so pray along with me in the coming months that God would accomplish that very thing in our midst as he guides us through the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Pray with me. Father, we do ask that you would accomplish that in our midst, that you would unite and knit hearts together in the common cause of laboring for your gospel. Grow us, strengthen us, change us, conform us to the image of your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.